This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Hi and welcome to Radiotherapy. Well, do we have a packed studio for this morning? We're chock full of doctors and nurses and we're going to be bringing you the best and brightest in the health media biosphere. I can hear some sniffing in the background. First up, we'll be speaking with Dr Jayesh Desai. He's a clinical oncologist who's doing some very interesting work at the uh, Walter and Eliza Hall Institute here in Melbourne. Jayesh has been researching personalised medicine. Hmm. Now, it's the buzz phrase of the decade. We're finally starting to match treatments to the individual person rather than a one-size-fits-all approach. And in cancer medicine, that is super, super important. Next, we'll be talking football. No, don't touch your dial. You haven't tuned into the wrong station. Today on Radiotherapy, we'll be asking the questions, how does footy inform psychology and what does... psychology tell us about football and who better than dr deep thought to exercise his prodigious cortical gray matter on the topic our favorite spleen team leader epipen i love that phrase spleen team leader epipen has been attending to some of her core values there you are EpiPen. <laughs> <laughs> you'll find epi wandering the hospital wards chanting the core the core the core no she hasn't joined the u.s marines she's doing something way more life-changing from 1990s to the reformer to teasers, EpiPen has been putting her inner core through its paces, and she's here to give us the lowdown on the science of Pilates. We'll have some very interested listeners taking notes about that one. Plus, Dr. Perry Bartum, our newest member of the team, will be in for some special comments, and we'll be playing some music, if I can find a CD. So stick with us for the next hour of Radiotherapy. Good morning, Dr. Deep Thought. Ah, uh, good morning. Another... Headwind ride into Triple R this morning. That's responsible for the sniffing. I just get a runny nose and a. Oh, was that your sniffing? I didn't mean to be critical. I just heard some sniffing. I was wondering where it came from. I'm owning up. It's some unusual guilt on my behalf. Oh, we've all got guilt. EpiPen, nice to have you in the studio. Morning. And uh, Dr. Perry Barton, thank you so much for coming in. Good morning. I'm going to put on my glasses because it's hard to see you guys. Hey, um, Perry. During the week, there was some big news, some uh, new research released. Was it from uh, Beyond Blue or Actually, someone else? it was research that was funded by the Commonwealth Government um, and implemented by uh, West Australian University, um, mm-hmm. and it was called Young Minds Matter. It's a nationwide survey of young people's mental health, which was undertaken over the last couple of years as a follow-up to a survey that was done about 10 years ago. And I suppose the focus of the research was really on the prevalence of mental disorders in young people as well as trying to see what kind of service delivery um, changes might help those people access the help that they need. And what were the findings? Well, the findings were multiple. I think from my point of view, looking after people with major mental illnesses, the thing that really worried me was the prevalence of major depressive disorder in young women particularly in sort of late teenage years 16 to 17 years where there are really high rates of depression and high associated rates of uh, self-harm and suicidal thinking and also um, lots of Uh, expressions of distress associated with those illnesses. So difficulties at school, difficulties with managing um, drug use and alcohol use and smoking and um, a really serious impact in all areas of their lives for these young women. So that was really disturbing. Mm. Um, The thing that was interesting about this particular survey as opposed to previous, the previous survey that was done in 1998 was that they actually included a self-report module where... Mm. um, young people took a, a tablet away into another room and um, and examined um, and, and were examined on all these sort of different domains. And that's where we get a difference between... When you say tablet, you mean like an iPad or something? Yeah, yeah, that's right. I, I thought no, I was thinking a, a pill. pill. A, 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 a paddle. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Yeah. No, sorry, an iPad. Uh-huh. And uh, and then uh, I suppose that's really useful because you get a different sense from the person themselves, the young person themselves, as to what's going on for them as opposed to what their parents think is mm-hmm. going on for them. And there's probably twice as many young people experiencing major mental illness as their parents think they are, which is mm. disturbing. Mm. So lots of things came out of this particular survey. And uh, usually when there is uh, the result of a survey published... 
there is a conclusion which is we need to do more of uh, X. Mm. So what was that? What's the X we need to do more of? Well, actually, there were <clears throat> there was some evidence that we're doing some things well. So yeah. um, whereas 10, 15 years ago, when people felt that they needed some more help, um, only about a third of those people did access that mm-hmm. help. This time around, it's about two-thirds. So it seems as though many more people know that there are services available and are actually accessing them, whether through their school or through their local GP. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and so I think that's a really positive change. I suppose what what remains a problem is a sense of stigma, which seems to be the major barrier for young people accessing mm. help um, mm. and a desire to manage the problem themselves. I guess that what you were saying about access is so important, isn't it, about far, you know, where do kids go? So there are places like Headspace and general practitioners, and they've got much more of a kind of a, a presence now, I guess, than they did 20 years ago, especially Headspace. I was just going to say I have a daughter in her 20s and it's um, they even share counsellors. <laughs> so they sort of um, are seeking help and um, seeing the benefits of it and spreading that word amongst their friends. And um, it's I, I find that in her group that it's quite readily accepted and um, they all recognise that they need some little bit of help and tweaking and getting through some tough decisions and lifestyle Tweaking. 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 As opposed to twerking. Twerking, yeah. That's the first thing. Twerking. Because not seriously depressed. I think the other thing we need to do, though, is is, um, think about what the findings actually mean. Is it a a real increased incidence in depression in young people, or are we picking up things that we hadn't picked up before? And I think we Mm. need to be thoughtful... about how to intervene. Do we pathologise it and see it all as capital D depression and they all need to Mm. see professionals and they all need to Mm. get help? Mm. Or is there support or are there things we can do in other ways that will help people through what might be brief situational related uh, disturbances in their mood? Mm. Trust you to get the big picture, DP. Yeah, yeah, interesting. Um, we uh, we should also mention that uh, look if you if you are experiencing problems, uh, Lifeline is a phone call away one three double one one four one three double one one four. And if you're interested in Headspace, which is a fantastic organisation, it won uh, Professor Magori uh, lots of accolades, and he became uh, didn't he become he was Australian of the Year. So yeah. he was the uh, the bloke that kind of uh, led the charge in terms of uh, Headspace. Just type that into your browser, and you can learn more about. Uh, Headspace and the, the great services they provide for young people. Now, um, <laughs> I look at you, Dr. Deep Thought, and I, and I want to laugh. And you're, you're about to tell me why I'm a it's baby. It's funny, lots of people have that response. <laughs> tell <laughs> me. I've got a thick skin. Yeah. <laughs> um, read an interesting article on um, New Scientist website caught my eye this week on um, why do babies laugh out loud? And I must say, I hadn't actually thought about it before then which which uh, disturbed me really because I spend most of my professional life working with <laughs> mums of babies um, and I read the article and I sort of uh, was a bit more informed but not quite but I've done a bit of thinking about it since then mm-hmm. and this article um, really talked about a study that was presented by um, some dude from the University of London some dude yeah and um he, he didn't... Well, their report, anyway, wasn't really about why babies laugh. It was about what makes babies laugh. And uh, what he did was surveyed lots of people about about what made babies laugh. So it was a reported study. It wasn't actually an investigation himself on what makes babies laugh. I could have done the study for him. It's when you go... And, in fact, most parents would have a small sample size... Uh, what's not surprising is if the most reliable way to make babies laugh is tickling. It's what you don't know, really. It's, yes, no. That's 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 not surprising. Oh, it's not yes. surprising. Okay, no, so it's tickling makes a baby laugh. Yeah, but makes it, me it, laugh. It's, you got it's, a grant for that. It's it's, <laughs> it's not it's not being tickled. It's the shared experience of being tickled by somebody that makes babies laugh. So if you just imagine you were being tickled and you had no idea who was tickling you. It would scared. be a very different experience from sharing the experience with someone, in particular with eye contact. Ah, so when you tickle a baby and it laughs, it's about you laughing and looking at the baby in the eye. And the shared experience. 
of us both making stupid faces. Yes. <laughs> it's up a thing. Yeah. And, okay. and, and you presenting it as a funny interactive act that you can share with the baby. Okay. Okay. So that's number one to make a baby laugh. Was there a list of the top ten? Uh, the, there were some some things that he um, he uh, showed didn't make babies laugh. The, the first study on what made babies laugh, or first study in the literature, was yeah. actually by Sigmund Freud, who didn't actually study it, but gave his opinions on uh, what made babies laugh. And and his opinion uh, was that. Um, that it was really sort of slapstick events that made babies laugh, that they would laugh at people falling over or, you know, silly things happening, you know, Three Stooges type events yeah. happening to other people. But, in fact, that, that quite frightens babies. I can imagine. They're much more likely to laugh when they fall over themselves and they're not hurt than seeing other people fall over, which, which is quite distressing and quite disturbing to mm. them. But I think what, what he didn't talk about in this article, which I think is is a core feature of... What makes babies laugh is that it's an empathic event. It's a sh- it, it, by empathic you mean shared or it's it's a, <clears throat> a shared emotional experience and experiencing the emotional experience of the other person is what makes it funny. So when I come to tickle you, mm. if it's an aggressive act, the empathic mm. shared event is not something that's going to make you laugh. But if I come up and I'm smiling and I'm making it fun, mm. the shared empathic event is going to result in, in it being it's, enjoyable it's, and it's going to be funny in your life. I'd love this idea, I mean, for a few reasons. One is that you mentioned Freud and Finder Sickle Vienna where an opinion was enough to make you a scientist, so yes. I love that. But but also, <laughs> it, it, my way... It's enough to make you a politician. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's, it's absolutely necessary. Um, Especially if you don't have any research to back it. Well, of course. Um, <laughs> That my, my concept with parenting is to mirror and modulate. Yes. That you mirror the child's experience, you modulate inside yourself, and then you give it back. And that's kind of what you just said the research supports. Yeah, making and, and mirroring, we, we talk about this concept of mirroring. It's, it's one of the actions of an empath, that creates an empathic event, an empathic experience for a baby. I'm going to write a book called Mal's Mirroring and Modulation. <laughs> How good would that be? Coming up, we'll be speaking with uh, Jayesh Desai about personalised medicine. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Talk about a segue about Walter and Eliza Hall Institute in Melbourne, because we've got one of their researchers sitting in the studio with us this morning. Jayesh, how are you? Good. Very good. Thanks, Mel. No, so nice to have you in. I just heard a, a huge creaking sound. It's, <laughs> it's a segue to my section. <laughs> it's the call. It's the call. <laughs> Don't mind us, Jayesh. This happens every Sunday morning, as you probably know, because yes. apparently Jayesh is a, a real big fan of the show. When I uh, when we had a chat earlier in the week, I said, look, we do this show called Radiotherapy. He goes, Radiotherapy! Love Radiotherapy! <laughs> yeah, can I just also add, because one time you said to me, don't worry about coming on the show. There's only our families, our kids, our partners might be listening. It's a small group. You've just ostracised all our listeners now. I tell you, there's more and more people that talk about the show, radiotherapy. We it's actually brilliant. got some likes on TuneIn Radio, and um, I went to, somebody dared me to go to, sorry, Jayesh, this is, I know this is your segment, but somebody dared Thanks for coming on. Yeah. Now the next segment. <laughs> Was it uh, iTunes? And we've got like, I think, four stars on iTunes. Lovely people have rated us so thank you lovely people you'll never end oh that's fantastic we got four stars and it wasn't us (laughs) i didn't say that um now jayesh tell us about your day job what do you do uh yes so i'm uh, i'm a medical oncologist so i'm actually a clinician and i work at the royal melbourne hospital and at peter mac um and i treat patients with cancers Mm. i have a particular interest in bowel cancer and in sarcomas um, and then, you know, thinking about obviously the theme here, which is around, um, you know, thinking about science and where it's taking us and mm-hmm. where it's taking us in terms of treating our patients with cancer. My research interest is in particular um, thinking about how we bring new drugs into the clinic, hopefully in a more efficient and effective way from a patient's point of view. So you use that you know, buzz buzz term earlier on, personalised medicine, personalized, which, yeah. uh, you know, we're sort of trying to use in all aspects of medicine, not just in cancer, of course. Yeah, yeah. Um, 
What does that What does that mean? Because I used it, but I, for me, personalised medicine means you tailor the medication and the treatment for the patient. But I think you're getting very technical about it. Yeah, absolutely. You know, so so as a clinician, right? Yeah. So for for people like us who, you know, personalised medicine should really be about everything. Yeah. You know, it's thinking about the patient. Yeah. It's thinking about where they are in their life. It's thinking about, you know, for cancer, for example, we use things like their performance status is actually a really important gauge of how well a patient is doing and what treatments, um, you know, how well they're going to cope with a performance particular treatment. Status means... Performance status meaning how well they are, you know, okay. how, how much is their cancer affecting right. them yep. um, and so on. But really, in, in the term that we use when we're talking about personalised medicine in this research setting, what we're really talking about there is with the improvement in technologies, with the sophistication we have now to get more depth into the understanding of an individual patient's cancer, you know, using things like genomic testing, right, where we can actually look at the tumour's DNA and to get a better idea of what that tumour is doing, that individual patient, how it's behaving, what's driving it. The next step there, of course, is if we have a better understanding of how an individual patient's cancer is behaving. So if I've got a bowel cancer, that my bowel cancer might be have a different genetic structure to somebody else's bowel cancer, is that right? And might respond differently to different treatments? Exactly. So until about a decade ago, you know, we would break down cancers essentially based on where they come from. Right. And that was pretty much it. Yeah. Breast cancer, bowel cancer yeah. and so on. Um, and what we're trying to do now is we recognise that bowel cancer is not one disease. It's actually many, many, many different diseases. And the question is, can we actually identify what subtype of bowel cancer sure this is in a particular patient and what's driving that bowel cancer to grow and then perhaps our therapies would be more tailored towards that rather than being more generic. So I was just thinking during our training we were all trained to treat patients as individuals. This is about also treating the disease as an individual as well. Absolutely, that's spot on. And, you know, that was the point I was making earlier about personalised medicine, which is not just about technology, actually. It's actually trying to, I mean, as we do as clinicians, you know, we try and look at at, at the whole patient, of course. Um, And this is understanding what their disease is doing, perhaps in a more specific way and in more depth than what we might have otherwise been able to do. I mean, we learnt a bit about this, didn't we, Um... Uh, DP and Epi when, and uh, Perry, when we were at medical school looking at breast cancers, that there were breast cancers that had uh, estrogen receptors and those that didn't, and they were treated differently. Um, and I guess this is a, a, a sort of super extension of that. that that's exactly yeah. it. You know, they were probably the first ways we had of trying to break down breast cancers based on particular proteins or you know particular um, molecules that actually would um, drive that breast cancer yeah. and if by understanding that someone has an estrogen receptor positive breast cancer that tumor is dependent on, on estrogen, estrogen yeah. and therefore by blocking that you end up with a, a treatment that could be quite effective so let's presume somebody comes into your clinic they have a diagnosis of bowel cancer in say five years ago they would undertake a specific range of chemo radio uh, therapy and some surgery perhaps oh i guess essentially but what what's different now what happens now yeah so 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 those things still happen of course you know the the mainstays of our treatment haven't changed that much however along with the three or four lines of chemotherapy for example we might have available that have some effectiveness in bowel cancer we now can possibly introduce one or two additional treatments, these targeted drugs, um, that will hopefully add to that armamentarium. All right. So, I mean, if you, you say, like, I come into you with a diagnosis of BALCA, you take some of the tumour and send it off for DNA testing? Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, so for, for cancers like bowel cancer, we would now do very much as a standard of care we would send off the patient's tumour for um, a... It's a DNA test. And at the moment, there are two or three genes that we know can be switched on in some people, and knowing that can be important because it will determine whether they should or shouldn't get a particular drug. This is a targeted drug. Um, And with some cancers... We don't have the ability to do that. And with other cancers, we can, you know, potentially look at half a dozen of these markers and determine which treatments we can use. Um, and where do these, um, the DNA samples go to? Like what labs and the cost? So, so the, the samples go to um, essentially most pathology laboratories that we traditionally have used um, have now what's called molecular pathology 
um, divisions within them, so really? they actually can test the DNA and come out with a particular test and a report. I didn't know that. How long does it take to get the test yeah. result? Because I remember the first genome mapping project <laughs> took... 12 years, uh, yeah. Like, yeah. a long time. Yeah, correct. So, you know, obviously if we're going to look at something like genome mapping, that's very complex, and that yeah. takes time still. It yeah. takes time to get the information, and more importantly, to interpret that information. That will take months still, potentially, yeah. right? Two or three months. Um, for standard testing that we do now, um, you would normally get a result back in something like four to six weeks. That would be about the average turnaround time, and sometimes it's less than that. And depending on the result of that uh, DNA testing, you will... Uh prescribe a certain type of medication have there been obviously there have been studies looking at the effectiveness but will that change my prognosis if you give me this drug rather than that drug yeah potentially you know that that's the whole idea i don't, I mean, like, I mean, I guess, I don't like that word potentially yeah, what potentially does that mean? meaning that look look I, I guess um you know it's very easy to be seduced by these things and new, new technology always means you know, positive things? And the answer is yes, it is. But at the same time, we need to temper that enthusiasm to some mm. extent. Um, you know, one of the, you know, the, the, the talk that we're going to be giving, which is um, will there be a cure for cancer, for example, you know, the reality is, the reality is if we're thinking about that, um, cancer is a very complex disease. It's one of many, 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 many different diseases. So, you know, coming back to your question about, you know, can I do a test and what difference is that going to make? It depends very much on the person's cancer type and what that test is, what the result shows. How and, early you, you got know, it. Yeah. I mean, my recollection of, uh, I did a, a couple of months on a, as a, in a, an oncology unit, was just the number of chemotherapy agents was astounding and you'd have like you know six or seven there'd be these incredibly complex acronyms like cytomegalobalmin yes. <laughs> you know it was just so complicated now you're adding more things to it as well 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 hopefully it's not using more things in that way you know in other words just keep adding one drug to the next to the next to the next in that individual patient at that particular time, which yeah. is obviously the, the, the scary thing where you yeah. know, side effects start to, to build and That's so on. Thinking, but it's yeah. to try and be a little bit more precise, actually, in what we're doing. Uh, and if we can yeah. understand you know, what it is that is driving a particular patient's cancer, maybe we can use drugs that would be more effective at actually targeting that. And that's where things are at the moment. So does the testing we've got at the moment uh, actually help you see what drugs not to use? Uh, yes, so so for some, so we talked about bowel cancer earlier. In fact, the main genetic test we use is actually to, to determine whether there is a particular drug that we otherwise would use, we shouldn't use because yes, it actually no doesn't point work. Getting side effects, correct? When you're not getting yep. any benefit, and the drug just doesn't yep. work. Um, so we know that in in breast cancer, the difference between uh, estrogen positive and estrogen negative uh, breast cancers. If you use particular types of treatments, that will lead to a difference in prognosis. And it's quite marked from my recollection. Yeah. Is there anything else that's that marked in the personalised medicine sphere? Actually, there are, there are actually lots of examples oh, now. Oh, really? Lots and lots of examples now. And, it, you know, if you started to break it down by disease, so, you know, in melanoma, for example, there is a particular gene called BRAF, where if that's mutated or switched on, that can lead to a therapy that can be quite effective. Um, so, you know... Lots and lots of examples like that now. I just, I, I, I don't want to look like an idiot, but um, DP and... Good thing uh, it's radio, then. <laughs> <laughs> have you guys heard of that before, BRAF, or am I just uh, the, odd, the odd person out here? No, never no, heard of it. I have it. never... Well, give us some other examples so I can sound, you know, uh, um, somewhat well-read. So, you know, so even breast cancer as well. So we talked about estrogen. There's yeah. what's called HER2. That's another marker that, again, if your tumour expresses that or shows that, that yeah. can drive that person's cancer. And there are drugs now that can um, work for that quite effectively. Um, so there are lots, actually lots and lots of examples like that, you know. And what do you think about... Who did I hear? Paul Davies on the radio the other day who was talking to Philip Adams about... He's the... I think he's the head of some consortium looking at convergence into uh, uh, managing uh, cancer. And by convergence, well, Paul Davies is a astrophysicist and he's joining with he's joined with a whole lot of people who aren't doctors or nurses or scientists or uh, health biologists to look at cancer because he says, well, we've kind of got it wrong the last sort of two, de two three, four decades of, of how we look at cancer. What do you think of that? Yeah, so, um, look, I, I, I'm not sure specifically about what he was speaking yeah. about. I, I think, you know, there's, there's no question that um, as, as our 
access to you know more sophisticated technologies and that grows the, the question always is you know how do you use that you know how can we actually use that information in a meaningful way and in a, in a helpful way um, and the point I think is is that we need to continue to you know both to chip away at things in a positive way but to continually also reflect actually on what we've done and how we've actually done it and, uh, and I think that's really what it's getting yeah. at and I suppose we're all investigating the same laws of the universe it's just a question of how do those universal laws apply in a slightly different area yeah, I love the idea, though, that you bring people from outside the field yeah, to yeah. try and answer yeah. questions inside the field. And was it Einstein or somebody that said um, the question will most likely be answered by somebody who hasn't asked it, you know, inside that yep. field? Yep. Um, can so, I just um, of course mention you can. something now? Of course you can. Um, so I've been going to MIF. So for those that are listening, it's the Melbourne International Film Festival. Right. And there is a film tonight, and I don't know if you're free, at 6.30. You're asking him on a date. I'm asking him <laughs> on a date. So it's a film about... Live it's on called, radio. It's called The Ecstasy of Wilco Johnson, and it's about a musician who's facing some life decisions with pancreatic cancer. Wow. And in my line of work, um, people lose their spleens, mm. often with pancreatic cancer treatment. And um, so uh, are you free? Mm. So it's looking at the <laughs> dilemmas and whether he should go for the full-on uh, cancer and, and uh, full-on chemotherapy or just accept his diagnosis and go travelling on a big P&O cruise. Wow. <laughs> well, that's a constant dilemma, isn't it? I mean, yes. that's something that comes yeah. up all the time. So that... That sounds very good. Could yeah. you review that for our next show? I'd love uh, to. If you that sounds terrific. Um, and now, WeHi is having a big do for a couple of weeks. Tell us about that, James. Yeah, so so as part of WeHi Centenary Celebration, um, they are really looking at ways of bringing science into the community and to invite the community to come and share with some of what's gone on both within WeHi and, and really within our, our local um, scientific community. So there are a series of talks. We are involved in a particular talk, which is called Will There Be a Cure for Cancer?, which is um, at Fed Square at the Deacon Edge um, Theatre, and that's on the 19th of August at 7pm. So um, perhaps if uh, I look at coming to the film festival tonight, we might get some, uh, some takers for that. That's fantastic. <laughs> Thanks so much, Jason. Thank you for the, the good work you're doing and for explaining it really, really well, because I find this stuff incredibly confusing but uh, you've made it sound nice. Three, triple. Ah. Hey, talking about being kind of really tired and stuffed, I went to a Pilates class once. Well, no, I've been several times, and it's really, really, really hard. Hey, have you been? It sure is. And being a consumer, I'm going to give you some facts and figures from my perspective. Tell me. Tell me about it. Tell us about, um, about uh, Pilates. 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 Okay, but so I'm not a p- practitioner, which is probably a good thing because then I can be unbiased in my approach to this. That's what I say about books I haven't read. <laughs> <laughs> um, but you're right because you're not in the field. And as we were just saying with uh, Jayesh, uh, because you're not in the field, you can look at it from a different perspective. Yeah, so um, Pilates, I looked up the definition. So it's a physical system developed in the early 20th century by Joseph Pilates and basically it's um, a way of toning and thinking about your body. But I just wanted to look at some figures. So in 2005, I'm sorry this is 10 years old, but there were 11 million people then in the United States doing Pilates with 14,000 instructors. So I'd imagine we could easily... When was it? 2005. 14,000? Pilates instructors wow. of any shape or form. That's a lot of so instructors. So when you start these sorts of things, it's really nice to work out who Mr Pilates was. So he was born on the 9th of December in 1883. He grew up in Germany and... He was described as a sickly child plagued by asthma, rickets and rheumatic fever. So it was a good thing that he probably did some Pilates and developed it. Um, He died at the age of 83, so I think there's some Mm. evidence in that. So his father was a prize-winning gymnast from Greece and his mother was a naturopath of some description. Oh, really? And young Joseph grew up being a gymnast and a diver and a bodybuilder and he moved to England in 1912 and he earned a living as a professional boxer, circus performer, 
self-defence trainer at police schools in Scotland Yard, and he created exercises which sprang from his determination to build up his body. Mm. He studied yoga, martial arts, Zen meditation, and Greek and Roman exercises. And I think all of those, that sort of background, really is a foray into what he developed. So during the latter part of the second, uh, the First World War, so Mm. we're talking about 1917, 1918, mm-hmm. 18. So he's 34. Um, he worked as an orderly in a hospital and looked after people um, who were uh, injured during the war on the Isle of Man. And he worked and did some, develop some of these exercises for these people lying in bed. I've heard this. So it was a way of getting people who were infirmed in bed to actually do some physical rehab. Yes. And that's, I guess, where I can see where the reformer comes from now. That oh, Cheapers and the Cadillac. So the Cadillac is this. It's. I think it's a bit of a torture chamber myself. So it's the it's the box that you lie on on a bed. It's yeah. well, it's a frame, and you put your legs up in the straps, and you do all these weird sort of. That's movements. where it came from from beds. From oh, beds. Oh, so and and it had pulleys on the end of it. So while he was developing strengthening muscles, he had pulleys at the end of the bed, and it pushed and pulled muscles. So you could do it all on your bed. You could do it on your bed. Oh, this makes so sense. that's the Cadillac, okay. and then the reform. Where's the name come from? The Cadillac. I thought it was a car. So did I. Well, same here. I didn't have time to go any further. <laughs> we want research about Cadillac next week. I've got a picture week. of one. Um, just for people that see, haven't been to a... To just hold it up to the microphone. For people that haven't been to a uh, Pilates Look into class. your speaker very carefully. It's like a four-poster bed, um, and it kind of goes above where you lie, and there are lots of strings and pulleys coming down from it. Yeah. Yep. Um, so, um, and uh, being a sort of mental practitioner that you are here today too as well, the mental and physical health was uh, very important and he thought that that was an activity while they're in bed and doing some physical activity. And maybe a segue into... Um, DP. DP, uh, you know, just it, people enjoying themselves and doing something is like babies smiling, people smiling, helping people, you know, get better after the injuries. Huh. So, um, so you've got to motivate people by making it fun. Indeed. Engaging them. Oh. Yeah. That's the end of my my <laughs> research. Oh, so sorry. the principles. I'll just go. So um, we've we've talked about core. So there's sort of nine or no six six, six principles? important principles. Okay. Concentration. Oh, hang on a second, because I'm going to test Dr. Um, Perry Partum <laughs> after your segment to say what are the six principles. See, look how she's listening now. Yep, yep. she's I'm paying attention. If okay. you don't get the first one, you won't get the yeah. other five. So concent- okay, concentration. <laughs> Are you concentrating? Concentration. Concentration. Yep. Control. Control. And they talk about controlology. Are there any more ologies left in the world? Uh, Centering. I can see three C's now. Bringing into the core. Is it six C's? Six. No, it's, and then that's eff- uh, flow or efficacy of movement. Flow. Precision. Yeah, they love that, the Pilates instructors. Everything's got to be like exactly right. Yep. And that's because um, then it's better than the half hearted movements. Yeah, yeah. And then breathing. Yeah, that's so true. So there's mindfulness, there's relaxation, but there's and focusing. So you're really, you know, focusing on what you're doing yeah. and mind you know expanding yeah. and the... so so the question is does pilates work work for what work in general for increasing muscle tone uh-huh. i suppose that's the question work for what but you see when you speak to people who go to pilates myself included they they become fanatics they say wow this has changed my life but so there's several reasons for that one of them is well, one reason is i married a pilates instructor <laughs> <laughs> that changed my life yes hello out there <laughs> Um, is well one of the, I think it's because there's a bit of a cult following. Yeah. People are doing it. People are benefiting from it. I do it with my husband, and we do it Saturday mornings, and then we go out for breakfast. So there's a social the interaction. We the plus we do it with a, with a physiotherapist. So if we've got so anything so else hurting. Yeah. We can uh, hone in on other muscle groups that. So if my neck's sore, I get a whole heap of exercises for my neck, mm-hmm. which might not necessarily be related to a Pilates class. But don't you reckon when you now look at um, people, you kind of like, especially sports people. I, I now look at their core. Like I just go, wow! You know, I, c- I can see a footy player. Running. What age group are you looking at? I'm looking at footy, like at AFL footy players. I'm looking looking at somebody like um, Gary Ablett Jr. Oh, who can packs. run to the left but lean to the right. And I'm just thinking he has got like his core yes. must be like iron. Like you know, it's just really 
You focus on what you know. So, and yeah. what do you see when you look at me? I think the same I've been thing. doing it for three I, years. I, How's my six-pack looking? <laughs> anyway, so as we're all sort of um, people that like to understand the evidence oh, of things. Evidence, yeah. So in 2011, there was a physiotherapy group. There's a journal called Muscle uh, Ligaments um, Something uh, Journal. Tendons, and um, they looked at. Um, <laughs> that is a top seller. <laughs> <laughs> Muscle ligaments. Muscle ligaments, tendons Tendon. journal. Sense. Anyway, yeah. uh, physiotherapy um, people would know what that is, and that journal is. And um, they said that. Well, they looked at things like post-operative rehabilitation, yeah. possibly good idea fall prevention so in the elderly toning up um, so does pilates pilates do so you're about to tell us the outcome of this yes study? Okay. pelvic floor strengthening oh for sure it's going to help that pain management yeah and overall pilates has been going around or going on for 90 years yeah and there's no strong evidence that it works. Is that because people haven't done the studies? Correct. Yeah, it doesn't mean it doesn't work. It doesn't work. work. It just means that, no, it just means yes, that they haven't they done, had done, the studies. done the studies. That's yeah. right. And everywhere you look, there isn't anywhere where they've really cho- um, developed or made strong statements from research projects whether it does work. wonder whether people need to look further than just those areas, though, because what I'm sitting here wondering is what is it about Pilates that people take into the rest of their life? So what and is it that you learn from the experience of Pilates that gets incorporated into you and the way you interact with the world rather than just specific muscle group tone? And sorry, can I ask another question? Of course you can. From a position of complete ignorance about Pilates, I must admit, people who are time poor would probably choose one kind of activity that's supposed to strengthen them and give them some kind of you know, psychological benefit as well. And I guess yoga is the other one that a lot of people think about. Why is Pilates superior to yoga in, in regard to the benefits that it provides? Well, I've, I've tried yoga and I have a few ailments and I can't do it. So if I do Pilates, they select muscle groups and tendon groups for me so that I don't, I can do it all. So and I and I um, I'm not a yoga person so I am, <laughs> but it's not a competition you see. Well, That's it. I mean, but if you're time poor, mm. um, you, well you have to focus on what's important to you. You know, is it your core? Is it flexibility? Hmm. But I don't think they're competing. Okay. And yeah. maybe it's just your pres- your preference. Some people do like and I'm you just do get it. It's, it is similar. In, in the exercises, and I think there's a bit more mindfulness in yoga. You are, you know, oh, concentrating. No. Well, Pilates, you chat away and you groan I'm and you my, grunt and you sweat. Not in my class, baby. Not in my <laughs> class. There ain't no chatting there. But do we? But do we have to prove everything? That's well, my that's question. That's a really good question. If it works for you and it's not harmful and it's done by a professional. It works. There's yeah. lots of spin-offs, and yeah. it's fun. It's a workout. It's a you can incorporate it in your in your weekly roster, and that, yeah, that's. I came away thinking there's all these systematic reviews of where, and they're really important ways to sure. assess um, topics in medicine and health, and where you really look at the question and everything that's been done about it, and. But and an absence of proof is not proof of absence. Yes, and if it's, very yeah. much so. Yeah, and I, 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 there will be one listener in particular now who is typing out an email to you saying, here are the 15 studies which shows the Pilates is absolutely fantastic and cures everything. Um, yeah. But can I just, and there's a last little thing. Um, so while I was Googling away and reading up on this, I struck the Australian Bureau of Statistics website and they keep tabs on us of what we do outside our workplace. So there's all these measurements. Really? So Yes, in 2005-2006, there was the Australian Purpose Household Survey and 10 million Australian adults participated in it and um, they they worked out this metabolic equivalent of task value and it's basically... That's a Yeah, that's when you go cycling at the gym you get a Met. Correct. Is that what it is? So this, so a Met. I hadn't heard of it before. I thought it was like an opera or something. So there's all these measurements and we've all been measured for... And the most bizarre things like frisbee throwing, sleeping. Sleeping you get a Met. It's 0.9 on a Met. But have a guess what's the highest Met, what sport you could do that would be the most energetic. Cross-country skiing. 
Tour de France. Yeah, it's, I didn't have that, but it, um, water polo clocked in as the highest. So that got a 10, a score right. of 10. So frisbee and boomerang That's throwing... you spend half the time trying to pull your bathers back up. <laughs> <laughs> Speak for yourself, don't you? Frisbee and boomerang throwing got, came in at a 3, yeah. but an ultimate frisbee came in at an 8. Right. And um, Australian Rules football's an eight. Uh, cricket's 4.8. Pilates? Pilates and yoga came in together at three. Really? Oh, yeah, but it's not. But that's. But, but Mets is about, I would presume, about uh, calorific expenditure. Yeah. Whereas yeah. Pilates, I reckon, see, I'm standing up, is about control and precision and concentration. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and you can. And sweat. that was really my question before about, you know, like what do you get from that experience yeah. of Pilates? What do you learn about control and precision? Or what do you get that from you yoga around mindfulness yeah, that you take into the rest of your life? And perhaps when we're only measuring exercise value and muscle tone, we're only measuring a fraction of the value. Definitely. definitely. Fantastic. How, how would you he's, measure he's fun? Great at a how do you measure? Party. Is it laughing, smiling, heart rate goes up, what fun flush? Index. What's the fun? How do you quantify fun? Oh, they've all gone quiet. <laughs> what can we say, what can we say on radio? Yes, three psychiatrists. And well, you're, we should get people. In fact, we should do this as a segment. What constitutes fun and what well, is the fun thing? That, that, that is a whole show. Is there a fun score? <laughs> now, speaking of which, thank you, uh, Dr. EpiPen. EpiPen? EpiPen. I'm getting EpiPen and peripartum. I'm getting the two. You, you've got to mm, cut it together. Say them quickly, Tim. It's just too hard. Three, triple, ah. DP, footy, big news in the last couple of weeks. Uh, Well, well, the big personal news for me is um, Australian rules is normally something I have absolutely no interest in whatsoever. In fact, I'm one person in Melbourne that knows virtually nothing about AFL and cares even less about (laughs) AFL, but suddenly I was quite interested. Go the pies. Is that a pepper pie? Yeah. Or Hot a... pies. You've got two Collingwood supporters here in a group of five. I think that's... Oh, wow, great. <laughs> See, I knew this was going to happen yeah, to you. never understood it, really. <laughs> On a Carlton Scott supporter. Support. Ooh, oh, he's whispering one. over there, <laughs> slinking under the desk. Um, what, caught, what caught my interest, though, wasn't actually what was happening on the field. It's a complete mystery to me and remains a mystery. But what was happening off the field? Mm. And it was what was happening around the Adam Goods affair. Yep. And it got me thinking that really I need to do a bit of reading about large groups because I've got to had a bit of experience working in a therapeutic way with groups, but they're what we call small groups, groups of eight people or so. But what are the different dynamics that happen in a large group? And what was happening around that whole Adam's Goods incident? So I thought I'd do some reading on it. And um, I foolishly thought I could do a segment on it. In fact, I could probably do a series of shows on it and it still wouldn't cover all the uh, information. So I've just sort of cherry-picked a bit of uh, information that isn't really comprehensive at all. But I thought I'd start looking at uh, the history of... um, Research and, and interest and investigation into mobs. And, and really, there was a huge gap in research and interest in mobs because the, the Romans were actually very good at it. And the whole reason for the Colosseum was around crowd control and about managing the population. Bread and but, circuses, yeah? Bread and circuses. Yeah. But then, of course, as cities shrunk, um, there was this lull of uh, 1,500 years or so, and it, modern interest really only um, picked up with the Industrial Revolution when cities started to grow oh. and with the start of the French Revolution and then riots and, and revolutions through the 19th century really got people starting to think about the mob mm. and what was going on in the mob and particular how we can control it. And the first person who was uh, very influential thinking about the mob and who's had a lot of influence right up to really the middle of the 20th century was a guy called Gustave Le Bon who wrote about about uh, crowds in uh, 1895. He's been very influential and I I think partly because there's a grain of truth to what he says 
but there are also huge um, problems in the way that he's looked at looked at it and left out quite a lot of really interesting. What was his name? Gustave uh, Le Bon. Le Bon. L e b o n. Frenchman. A Frenchman. I guess that. Um, <laughs> Le Bon. What he what he saw was that that and part of the problem was coming. I, I guess he's very culture bound. Comes from the way he was looking at it as a as a creature of the Enlightenment. And he saw thinking in a sort of very hierarchical way that what was really most important was the individual and and oh, the yeah. individual and logical thinking was higher order thinking and that in a mob situation, in a group, the danger was that you'd lose your individual mind and you'd devolve into this primitive, savage creature. Isn't that what we think is yeah, happening? Exactly, I that was yeah. Exactly what's well, been well going on. that is part of what's happening, but but it's not only what's happening. But but Le Bon's thinking was very influential, and the reason why it was influential is that Le Bon saw it as a great opportunity that if the uh, forces of control could understand what was happening, they could use it to their advantage. And this is where it was picked up, and it was picked up by um, people like Mussolini and Hitler and Goebbels. And so Le Bon's thinking has been very influential. Um, What he he talked about was that, that, in fact, there were a couple of things that were really important then in controlling the mob, because it was all about control, that you had to simplify your ideas, you had to use affirmation and exaggeration, not worry too much about the truth, and that you have to repeat points over and over again. Does that sound like something in contemporary <laughs> politics? Oh, our leader. Wow. wow. It's been described as having a speech impediment because he keeps repeating things over and over and over again. So you can see Le Bon's ideas are very influential. Influential because, of course, there is something to them. So, hang on, he was a creature of the enlight- of the, um, the French Revolution or the Enlightenment? Or? Well, no, end of the 19th century. So he was the end of the 19th century, so the 1800s, end of the 1800s. Yes, right? but, but then there'd been the uh, Third Republic in France where basically the people had taken control and, of course, that's extremely dangerous and that had devolved into just a... Um, rulable right. rabble and okay. No, because it's always interesting to know where people come from and their yeah, thinking. Yeah, yeah. and so and all these things guide people's thinking. So there was a lot of fear around the mob then, and fear around crowds, which actually wasn't based on reality because what the research subsequently has showed is that that rob, mobs don't act in a chaotic way. They're actually very goal directed. How, how big is a mob? What's the definition of a mob? Well, this is part of the problem. Uh, it's sort of like, um, you know, how many slices are there in a pie? It depends how you slice it up. Uh, it's There's a sort of consensus about what constitutes a small group. And a small group is, you know, around about eight or nine people. And then there's sort of middle-sized groups. And then there's large groups. But different people will look at them in different ways. A middle-sized group might be up to about 100. And a large group has been in a crowd. So- so you might get to this, Stapy, but does a mob always need someone to lead it? Because I'm, I'm thinking of, you know, the rabble with the pitchforks and the and the torches, you know, lynching in, um, you know, the in you know, medieval towns. And in fact, this this actually touches on the, the weakness of Le Bon's ideas. You know, whereas we've all had the experience of being in a concert, and you actually enjoy sort of losing your mind, yeah, becoming yeah, yeah. Yeah. part of, a part group, of yeah. the concert experience. What's also important about large groups is that they are goal-directed. Where does the goal come from? And what's missing from Le Bon's ideas is the whole idea of social connection and meaning because you can't have that if you actually lose your mind. So there's a sort of contradiction Uh, in the way he's conceptualising it. And so that's led people to then come up with much more sort of learning theory and social interaction uh, more modern theories that are looking at, you know, well, yes, OK, there's a bit of truth to what this dude was looking at, but there's a lot that's been really missing. So what else is happening in, mm. in uh, groups? And so there's a number of, of different streams that have looked at it in slightly different ways. There's this idea of uh, that's called emergent norm theory. Norms as in sort of normative ways of thinking about things. Not as in the guy sitting on the couch with a beer. No, not norm yeah. with the yeah. yeah with the butt crack <laughs> yeah. born into the couch with the beer in his in his hand. And uh, 
norms evolve through social interaction, social connection, and become a shared value of the group. So it's like this negotiation between ah. people in the group. And how do they do that? Is it just through... I mean, how do you... The negotiation is through just watching... Modelling, watching what somebody does, and I like that, so I'll, I'll do a bit of that because it feels like it's the right thing to do. Is that... And, and this is some of the other theories that have then developed yeah. that, that, in fact, don't see the group as a homogenous group, but see the group as, in fact, a number of different groups and people can move in and out of different sub-elements of the group. Mm. And, in fact, the experience of the group is different if you're outside the group looking in. So an example might be if you're on a protest march Mm. through the city and there's a number of groups that are attracted to the protest march. If you're inside of the group, you see people who are carrying banners that you don't support 100%, but, of course, there's an overlap in shared values. Mm. But then there are the people that are just coming along to create trouble who Mm. you really don't identify at all and really want them to just piss off and leave the group Mm. because, you know, they're going to create trouble. If you're standing on the other side, outside the group, and you're a member of the police Mm. and you see this march coming down the street and there are people causing trouble, you, of course, see everybody in the group as Mm. being part of Mm. that group. And so there are all these different perspectives that people bring to the experience and all this negotiation between different members of the group. So you're kind of more tolerant of opinions different to yours whilst you're in the group because you've got kind of a shared value. If there are enough shared... Yeah, values. whereas if you were standing outside, you'd be going, hey, 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 I actually don't... Oh, that's fascinating. And this is also mediated through people that appear as leaders in yeah. the group. And people will identify with particular leaders saying particular things and will, will follow their lead. And you get a recruitment that if 50 people start booing, then you're more likely to get 100 people to start booing. Because you're kind of going with the flow. And there will certainly be some people that are booing because they're racist, but not everybody that's booing is going to boo because or, they're racist. Or identify as racist, but it's kind of they're, it's, they're in that sort of mob sort of psychology. Is that the right word to say yeah, the time? Yeah. yeah, and then if I start from outside, I start attacking you because you're a racist because you were booing yeah. Adam Goods, and you're saying, no, I wasn't a racist. I was booing him because I just think he's an asshole. It's got nothing to do with... Or, you know, he's behaved in a particular way or then then that's a different perspective as well, and then you tend to see me in a particular way as a member of the outside group. Well, this gets complicated. It's very complicated, and it's a lot more complicated than someone like Le Bon originally saw it, even though I think there is some merit to what Le Bon says, particularly in small groups. But mm. I think large groups, there's much more social interaction. Mm-hmm. There's... A, also the idea of, of becoming anonymous in a large group. We're going to have to cut you off. I'm so sorry, DP. It, uh, as you say, we, you could fill up I could, uh, I could fill have up a series shows. of shows on groups. And, um, it's really exci- it's excited me enormously. DP, that's a great topic. It is a really good topic, but we're going to have to finish up now. But we'll come back to this. Why don't we come back to this, DP? Because it's, I'm just still getting my head around what you're saying. It's, it's actually quite complicated. Um, thank you so much to EpiPen for coming in. Uh, Jayesh Desai, thank you for coming in. Thank you, DP. Thank you you so much to Dr. Perry Partham. We are going to leave you with those wacky scientists from uh, Einstein the Gogo, but we'll see you again uh, next uh, Sunday morning. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.